right, welcome to Irreligiosity. This is podcast number four. This is our guest week. Yeah, guest week. We uh, right now have uh, Becky online with us, and we will have her introduce herself. So, uh, Becky, the floor is yours. Oh, hi, y'all. My name is Becky Garrison. I'm a religious satirist and author of a couple of books, Red and Blue God, Black and Blue Church, The New Atheist Crusaders, and Their Unholy Grail, and as well as Rising from the Ashes, Rethinking Church, and I'm working on two other books right now. Now, from what I understand, Becky, you actually have a book uh, in the works right now. Is it in your publisher's hands? or? Um, one book the editor is looking at, and I'm starting to research the other book. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I'm also, the magazine is temporarily on hiatus, but I was also the senior contributing writer for quite a while for the Wittenberg Door, and we're hoping to resurrect that shortly. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when I ran across the Wittenberg Door, uh, it kind of had me chuckling, and the reason why is uh, an experience I had with my dad. Now, uh, a little while back, I was sitting in front of my dad, and uh, <clears throat> we're kind of uh, smart Alex to one another, and he made some comment to me, and I... I told him, uh, basically, that uh, in order to find intellectual conversation, one must find their equal, which is why I pray so much. And my dad turns to me and says, whoa now, son, you're getting very close to blasphemy. And uh, this is why I find the Wittenberg door so fascinating. I mean, where do you draw the line for blasphemy versus satire? I mean, I'm sorry to ask you this, but it's just very fascinating to me what you do. Well, first of all, there's a line between satirizing a subject and slamming someone's soul. And you need, sometimes it's required that you get down on your hands and knees and kind of do a lot of prayer and discernment on that front. It's also the role of the satirist is equivalent to that of the court jester to the king. So the, the king, the court jester never went out and ragged on the peasants. So I, and subsequently, I don't get rag on the people in the pews. There, I leave them alone. The people you go after are the king, the, 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 the empire builders. Oh, so, so basically, it's everyone who tries to keep others from the love of God, which is the only time, if you notice, that Jesus really lost his temper was in the temple. And he did so because others were preventing full access to God. Oh, now that actually makes sense because you and I going back and forth in emails, I was talking to you about the reason why Glenn Beck angered me so is because he is a Christian, if you will, with a motive. He has a reason to go out there, and it just angers me when I find that falseness. I mean, I'm completely okay with you if you truly believe, but when you're using something to push yourself forward, that's when it starts to irritate me, and you were actually commenting on that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things that we tend to get annoyed with is anyone who tries to brand and commercialize Jesus. Whether it's, you know, I'm a progressive power player, I'm a member of the religious right, I'm a member of the latest emergent church. Any movement where someone tries to turn what I would see is like the movement of the spirit into a you know, commercial entity where they themselves are saying, I'm now going to be a spokesman and manufacture the ka-ching from that. You know, it's just no more difference than you know, someone trying to market themselves as a romance writer or any other genre. It's just there's something odious to me about taking the name of Jesus and doing that. My question, I guess, would be, is there any you talk about you're satirizing the people like the I guess the far right wing that are that are trying to uh, the televangelists I guess the, the guys who are trying to make money yeah, yeah. Uh, is there any role for satire of say biblical verses or the ideas the doctrines or the theology itself 
it's more how people tend to take the word of God and distort it throughout history. You know, for example, you know, take deciding that an entire group of individuals are definitely destined to hell because there's a couple of verses in Leviticus and Romans that certain people take completely out of historical and sociological context. You know, take deciding that Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Then you go to certain Christian events, and it looks like everybody just OD'd on prunes. <laughs> you know, that's the point where I go, okay, wait a minute. Are we living, it's, it's commanding people, myself included, are we living out the teachings of Jesus Christ? Because I do believe that often, we're so many times people are given the wrong impression of what Christians really are by the way that we act. And if we all try to strive to act like Jesus then at least when people say, I decided I don't want to follow Jesus, at least they're, they're being given an accurate representation. You're referring to uh, homosexuals when you talk about the, the certain verses, the certain lifestyles uh, in Leviticus. Uh, am I right? In that particular instance, yes. But then people will say, I want to be pro-life, but then they're also pro-death penalty. You know, though, I mean, when, when you take the verses of the Bible and just take them and mangle them, like you've decided that what matters more is making sure that you get on the salvation special and you know get yourself up to heaven. You're not even concerned about caring for God's creation, even though God made it pretty clear in Genesis from the get-go that that was our job. You know, So I don't make fun of the Bible per se. It's more how people tend to take and use and mangle and misinterpret the Bible. Gotcha. There's really nothing in the New Testament about homosexuals with the exception of Paul. Paul... Uh, Paul is known, A, for being a misogynist, B, for being anti-homosexual. But it's interesting... When he, you... he, he's known in certain Christian circles. Correct. That, it... that, that's a different... Inter... There's other Christians who would take the, say that those verses have been taken out of context. Well, it's interesting that, that the verses themselves, if you look into them, actually uh, some of those verses that, that he's been known for uh, as a misogynist actually were later insertions. Um, but, but it's also the fact that what Paul is also addressing is a certain sociological conundrum at the time. For example, his, his admissions about not having you know, male sex was the fact that when you would go to a temple, you would be part of your worship of the temple god was to have sex. So Paul is basically saying, pick a lane, which I think is a pretty saying, you know, you can't worship God and still decide to play in the temples. You, know, there's a, you have to make decide, are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to be following the worship of the temple gods? If you have a religion where basically women are treated as property and Christianity is pretty much illegal, and all of a sudden women are taking off their socially acceptable headdresses and preaching in public and going out of the norm, that's not a good idea. Those those verses that you're talking about where he says that women should pretty much be very quiet, if they have any questions they should ask their husbands uh, after church, um, actually probably are, are insertions later on. If you look at it closely, it says that if you take those sections out, the narrative flow uh, continues is, is pretty, it's pretty, smooth pretty smooth going through. Plus, in the early manuscripts, they're actually the, that verse right there is, is placed in different places. Well, so it looks like it was a marginal note maybe that was inserted later. Well, New Testament scholars will debate on what got added when, where, right. and so forth, but even taking the text until Constantine came over and said the religion was legal, it was a much more egalitarian system. If you notice, a lot of the patriarchy of the church started to creep in 
once it was taken over by empire. And that's when we started having the whole struggle between church and empire. You know, you actually had, you know, in Romans, you know, Prisca and Phoebe and other women were assuming some pretty large and important roles in the early church. Oh, yeah, sure. It, um, in one of the verses, Paul refers to Junia, I think, as one of the foremost yeah. apostles. Yeah. And yeah. I think a couple verses ab uh, above where he says that women should keep quiet, he's talking about women who are preaching in the church. Which, of course, uh, back then would have just Well, been typically it was held in the wealthiest member's home, right? And sometimes that was a woman. And then uh, and in ancient times, I guess it would be that, that women... Uh, had their domain of power within the home, within the house. So that was that was their seat of power. When they were actually had churches later on, like the second, third century, they were trying to get away from it. And that's when they think, I think, that, that this stuff was inserted to win yeah. the... Yeah. yeah. Well, which is interesting, because I had a great books course in college, and that was the uh, charge that was leveled against Paul, that he was a misogynist. And so when I, I study this later, when I'm actually interested in it, when I'm an atheist, it turns out that's not the case, that it was probably a later insertion. I, but that's pretty unfair. Well, I mean, that's, there's a lot of things, and this is what people try to do. For example, um, Mary, there's no evidence that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Correct. We just know she was a woman who didn't get married. That there's was a lot probably... Of, there's a lot of decisions to take... This is why I don't, I don't feel that I don't need the Da Vinci Code. I don't need... The Gnostic Gospels, a lot of them were written a lot later, a little bit fruity. Because if you look at the actual Bible, it's the most liberating document, the New Testament, in the world. I mean, I mean, women were treated as chattel that Jesus made whole. I mean, he speaks to a woman at the well in the Samaria. We cannot understand in our culture what that's like. Because w women, we, in very, there are some places, unfortunately, where obviously there's still some sex trafficking going on where women are treated as subhuman but just imagine a woman who is who is subhuman from a sub-race, and Jesus goes and talks to her in public at a well. I mean, that's just something in our culture cannot fathom how scandalous that would be for a clean rabbi to do that. But he would break every law under the book out of love. Well, sure. He, uh, the Pharisees were after him, even in the New Testament writings themselves, for talking to women in public, right? I mean, certainly he was at least a proto-feminist. He probably wouldn't qualify as a feminist today, per se. Yeah, but, but he I mean, he was a, pushing the bounds. He was well, he was way outside the bounds uh, 2,000 well, years ago. If he, came, if he came along today, he'd be a totally egalitarian, and I would argue that we would, we would crucify him again. <laughs> I mean, you know, because he was that... He, whatever boundaries we have set up today, he would break them, because he broke... I mean, the mere fact that Mary was allowed to move from the kitchen to the all-boys theological discussion was just unheard of. I mean, this is just... I just say we we can't fathom this because we have a society that is a lot more egalitarian. I mean, we don't women are not considered property. I'm not sure we'd crucify him. Well, I, I don't we know. We might I, shoot I, him. I, uh, <laughs> we might. Well, okay. Well, you know, we aren't using the crosses anymore. We might, I'll accept that. We might inject him with inject him lethal death. Yeah. Well, that that's actually very curious. So, uh, do you mind if I ask you what? Uh, particular assets in our modern day life do you think uh, Jesus would really start stepping out of the bounds on and pushing around? Um, I don't claim to speak for the voice of oh, no, God no, no. the I'm voice just, of Jesus. No, 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 I'm not going to, yeah. I think, first of all, I think you'd be very upset with any notion of anybody residing in the White House who claims to speak for God. I think the National Prayer Breakfast would probably make him sick to his stomach. For example, I mean, I mean that's, an, that's a gathering which is sponsored by the White House, in which, you know, prayers are offered. But as Jeff Charlotte points out in a very insightful book, The Family, Jesus is always present there. I don't know if Jesus would really want to be 
thought of as this national prayer breakfast kind of a dealie. I think he, my guess is he would probably go down to TBN studios and anybody that is actually broadcasting and bilking people for money would definitely get on his, you know, sore side. Their tables I don't know how it, would certainly be overturned. <laughs> um, I think he would probably get get annoyed with a number with all of us who we claim we're serving the poor and we're pocketing the money ourselves. You know, you, you go to these really fancy churches, it's having a big fight over you know, their organ, and meanwhile, there's a poor group of poor people nearby. A lot of people lost their job. A lot of people need money. You know, I don't know how you would feel about, you know, some of these churches having very incredibly wealthy endowments while God's children starve overseas. You know, I don't know how you would feel about Western missionaries coming over to a country like, you know, the Middle East or, you know, Africa and trying to evangelize, you know, the heathens without any respect to their own indigenous culture. It's. I, I think Jesus would be absolutely appalled at the, at the sex trafficking industry that's going on today under our watch. The fact that we buy Nikes made at the hands of children who are, you know, being live being in conditions that none of us can even fathom. So my hunch is, you know, that the child, the sex trafficking, child slaver, would definitely be at the top of his list. I got a question for you. Um, one of the critiques of the historical Jesus movement is that each historical Jesus author ends up picking out the Jesus. They, they arrive at the conclusion of the Jesus that they uh, like, or that they want, or the Jesus of their own era. Um, so you, you'd come up with a socialist Jesus, or um, a reformist Jesus, or a revolutionary Jesus, or an egalitarian Jesus. How, how do you know that your egalitarian Jesus is or was the actual Jesus who walked, if he did, walk the earth? Well, what I think is exciting about the person of Jesus Christ is how he continues to live today. It's, it's a living, breathing, I mean, to me the scripture is a living, breathing entity that it doesn't, it doesn't die. And that Jesus somehow manages to continue. I mean, if this was just an old dying religion, I think this would have gone the way of the Greeks or it would have gone a lot of other ancient religions that no one worships anymore. There's something about what is happening that manages to transcend all of our feeble attempts to try to label and identify. It continues and endures despite us. Now, you're an Episcopalian, is that right? Yes. As an Episcopalian, do you believe in the literal second coming of Jesus? Is he going to come back in the clouds and uh, are we all going to get raptured, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I, I do believe that, the, I don't know, I think it's beyond me to understand what will happen when Jesus decides to come back to earth again. I like, what I like to focus on the fact is that Jesus made it perfectly clear it's our job to create his kingdom here on earth. I mean, the point of the resurrection was we're now new creatures and a new creation. So if we are in Christ, we should be a new creation. It's not a question of keeping myself all clean and angel soft ready so I can get up to heaven. It's how do I try to live Jesus' teachings out here on earth? Well, that's you know, very... I, oh, sorry. You know, Go ahead. One thing that absolutely appalled me, for example, when I went to Israel and I went to Bethlehem, what we're doing to the, God's children in the very city where his son was born makes me want to throw up. It's absolutely, it just makes you want to cry. You cannot believe that we've, we've allowed to do that, and it gets absolutely no news coverage. Nobody seems to care. You well, know, it's, it's just, we need to like start thinking, are we really enacting Jesus' teachings on earth? And Jesus always stood with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the lonely. Do, our, do we do this as Christians? Do our churches do this? 
So, um, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, then by your views, reaching this utopia that Jesus was talking about coming back and doing is within our hands. It's not a matter of Jesus coming back for the second time. It's a matter of us actually rising above ourselves and actually creating this utopia through caring for the poor and through following his teaching. Is that correct? Well, knowing that we're human, we're never going to achieve a utopia, I believe, until we're actually in heaven. But we're, to me, I, I feel like I'm living in this in-between time. And, you know, eventually, I, I mean, N.T. Wright, I think, in Surprise by Hope, is a much very thorough analysis for the people who really want to delve into this. But to me, we're living in this in-between time. You know, before Jesus will come back, come back again and before we go to heaven. And the question is, too many times I think Christians spend all their energy getting themselves ready for heaven without thinking, what is our obligation while we're here on earth? And Let, that's the part that I try to you know, refocus people and think about, what about this life here on earth? Let's back up a little bit. Uh, were you raised Episcopalian? Oh, that's a good idea. What is your conversion story? I mean, uh, what has um, brought you to this point? Well, my, my late father was an Episcopal priest, so I kind of say that I was prenatal Episcopalian. You know, if you do the, um, it, you know, if you do the ecclesiology and the science, it kind of makes sense. And he was one of these civil rights activists, kind of hippie kind of professor types, who also eventually, through his own demise, you know, succumbed to alcoholism. So that was kind of a very early childhood experience of being, you know, the black sheep of the family, always going off and you know, being exposed to a rather radical form of Christianity. And I then did what everybody does in their 20s who are raised by hippie parents. You become a young Republican and, you know, went through some kind of conservative Bible studies. I was always searching for something. I always thought there was a thread that I needed to find. And as an adult, I settled back into the Episcopal Church again. Now, I might be getting some of these details wrong, but... As far as Episcopalians go, isn't one of their leaders a female who is also a marine biologist? Uh, that's our, our, the presiding bishop. She's also right. a pilot. Oh, wow. Um, which is, it impresses me because yeah, pretty impressive, um, actually. she accepts evolution, right? They're progressive. They're, they accept females. And I believe there's this big fight about uh, the acceptance of ordaining gays into uh, the Episcopalian priesthood, right? They were allowing gays to be priests. Isn't that right? Uh, well, that's one of those issues with the way it's being handled. I think what you're basically having is extremists on both ends of the, of the spectrum are trying to inform a church as a hierarchical church that comes to a consensus. So you basically, in a nutshell, liberal, you know, the Bishop Spongs of the world and the Bishop Duncans have pretty much tried to hold the church hostage by grabbing both ends of the polar opposites and not even as though our church experience is defined solely by our sexuality. You know, there, there's, they've hijacked, I mean, we'll have a convention and nothing else is discussed. You know, the environment, the Millennium Development Goals, a whole yeah. range of other issues that should be discussed as well. But didn't this cause a huge rift in between like the United States Episcopalian Church and, and is either European or African or something like that? Well, it, it's a huge, it's a huge rather drawn out mess. And as I said, a lot of it is you have certain Anglicans are not behaving very Anglican is one way to put it. There, we, ha we do have, there are ways that this can be resolved in Anglican circles, but what often happens is you have, you know, the liberals who decide, I want to, anything goes, I'll do whatever I want to do without paying attention to your neighbor, and the conservatives doing likewise. That tends to produce a pretty good-sized mess. So this but, I, I, but, at least, but at least the Episcopal Church is admitting we have this issue. I mean, a lot of these other denominations, whether they like it or not, have gay clergy. 
Just because they're in the closet and they're married doesn't mean they're not gay. Oh, not going to argue that. I agree with you entirely. That's, that's absolutely true. I, this kind of leads into, you know, one of your books was written against uh, the, the so-called new atheists, um, the uh, Daniel Dennett's, the uh, Sam Harris's, the uh, Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchens. Uh, and in, in, I think, a common thread, I haven't read Dennett, but a common thread certainly in, in Sam Harris, and I think he may have been the first one to make the argument, is that the religious moderates are providing cover essentially for the fundamentalist. If it weren't for the moderates who appear to be reasonable, uh, the fundamentalists wouldn't exist because no one would have any time for them, right? Uh, well, I think that that's a, that's a complete distortion of church history. You know, you have to think about the what, what we consider to be the American fundamentalists of today came about as, as a result of the Niagara Bible conferences back in the nineteen fifteens or in that era around that time, which was which was a response to what they saw as the creeping modernity. There's they really solidified themselves during the Scopes Monkey Trial. Then they hid themselves underground. And you really saw them reemerging. They say back around the 1970s when they began to protest against Bob Jones University. If you remember that whole incident where Bob Jones University got denied their IRS status because they were practicing segregation, right? They're discriminatory. And they later latched on with some conservative Catholics in the late 70s with homosexuality and abortion as the two linchpin arguments. So I think. These guys have gone up on their own stream. You know, the National Association of Evangelicals is some 40 million members large. If you look at the number of moderates, it's such a tiny little itty-bitty drop in the bucket that I don't see, if, if, if anything, I think it's a testament to the fact that the moderates are still standing. You know, we're definitely in the, in the minority. Sure. The, um, the fundamentalists uh, wield a lot of political clout, unfortunately, which is probably why the, the quote, new atheists are going after them. Um, I, you know, Dawkins often puts it, you know, they're often, they ask him, what about, uh, what do you think about the, your large scope in the strategy, right? You're, you're hurting, by being such an outspoken atheist, you're hurting the battle between, say, evolution and creationists. Um, well, that's even something your wife has brought up concerning us bringing out irreligiosophy. I mean, what is the wider scope of us doing this? Right. The, you, you might win the battle but lose the overall war against irrationality, basically, is what, is what the, the atheists are saying about Dawkins. Um, and I think the attack against moderates, actually, this is where I part ways with, with them. I actually would like to see more Episcopalians, more Unitarians, more progressive Christians and fewer literalists and people who believe that the Bible is absolutely the Word of God and inerrant. In all honesty, I'm on, I'm on your side with this. I mean, I was telling Charlie about a discussion I was having with my cousin just last night wherein uh, he was trying to convince me that despite carbon dating and dinosaur fossils and everything else, that the world wasn't 4.5 billion years old, that it was only five to 6,000, and pretty much it was... I would rather have people like you, Becky, who sounds to be forward-thinking than these prior ones who believe that before uh, Noah took his ark out for a spin, that light did not form a prism and that you didn't get rainbows. So, <laughs> but, I mean... But a lot, of, but oh, a lot of it is, if you look at, for example, uh, I was watching this fight between um, Joan... Roughgarden, who is a transgender scientist who's also an Episcopalian and 
a Christian who wrote a book called, you know, Evolution and Christian Faith, and watching Dawkins take her apart and just rip her to shreds, most of us just don't want to deal with that. We're just, you know, if you think we're all a bunch of blickety-blanks and we're complete morons, why would I want to talk with you? Why would I, you know, a lot of Christians, you know, Dawkins say, well, people don't want to debate with me. Well, you're a bully. Why would people want to subject themselves to this? And what they don't realize is I was talking, you talk to some of these scientists who work in, let's say, a more conservative school, some of them are risking their funding because they believe in evolution. I mean, these are the people we should be getting behind. I mean, I have yet to see, when I was researching the New Atheist Crusaders, they're on Holy Grail, I could not find a single scientist that was top-ranked. And I, I found Keith Miller, Joan Roughgarden, and, and um, Professor Francis Collins, all of whom believe in evolution and all of whom are practicing Christians. So when, when they get called every name in the book... When they actually are trying to bridge this ground, it just it gets a lot of people very frustrated. You know, why should I bother? Yeah, uh, Kevin Miller, I think he's the author of the um, the leading biology textbook on evolution. Uh, I believe he's a firm Catholic, and Francis Collins is the head of the uh, Genome Project, right? Yeah, yeah, both. And John Ruffard, yeah, John Ruffard worked at Stanford. Yeah, uh, brilliant guys. Um, they, it's tough to hear them talk about, for me, it's tough to hear them talk about religion in the sense, because Francis Collins said that he, he kind of had a, this spiritual experience, he was converted when he was walking in, a, in the snow and saw a frozen waterfall and it was in three parts, and therefore the Trinity, therefore God exists. It, it's kind of rough hearing those types of arguments from someone who is otherwise eminently rational and, and amazingly good at science, because it seems to me so anti-scientific. But I think as long as they can compartmentalize this stuff, and since atheists are actually such a small minority, it would be nice, because a big argument is atheism le or evolution leads to atheism, right? Yeah, that's They want to get this out of the schools, because evolution leads necessarily to, to atheism. But you can parade these guys, the Kevin Millers, the, the Rough Gardeners, the, these guys who are real scientists and who really deeply believe uh, they should be welcomed, I think, into the fight. Kevin Miller was was instrumental in destroying Michael Behe at the uh, Kitzmiller hearings. My God, he he took them apart. It was it was amazing, absolutely amazing to watch. If you get the transcript, you got to read it. It's well, see, and, fantastic. And that's actually one thing that really surprises me is uh, why is it that they aren't bringing these guys forward in the fight to. Uh, to bridge the gap between Christianity as well as evolution. It's the same thinking as uh, moderates are shielding the fundamentalists, right? Yeah. If you allow these guys to, to come forward, then, what else are you going to then you're accepting irrationality. And that's the big fight. The small fight's between creation and evolution. The big fight's between rationality and irrationality. If you accept the existence of the supernatural, I guess, um, you've kind of lost the war. Yeah. But it's also, I think... A, a total disgrace. I just watched Daniel Dennett at um, AAR. And what was horrible to watch is just seeing him take apart and, and decimate the world-class theologians. He, he had no understanding of their belief system and, and, what, and their whole method of their theology. I mean, these guys have said, you know, theology is useless. And if somebody's going to tell you, well, your discipline is useless, why would you want to argue with them? 
Now, interestingly enough, there was uh, something Charlie brought up, and uh, he was talking about how this fella sees the three waterfalls. Obviously, it's a miracle to him. Now, where do you sit where miracles are concerned? This is actually something and I ch- or something Charlie and I talked about in the Glenn Beck podcast is just how miracles as of today have kind of been dumbed down. I mean, you have Moses in the past parting waters, miracle, God coming down, talking in fire, miracle, and then now you have the miracle of childbirth. Where do Episcopalians stand with miracles in this day and age? I would love to see where, like in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where this guy comes up to Peter and he said, uh, sure, I paid the whole tithing, and Peter strikes him dead, right? He gets struck dead because he, <laughs> he lied to God, basically. I'd love to see something like that today. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that, to me, what's exciting is I just is the unknowing of it all. You know, and like what I don't want to say, for example, here in New York City, we, as I said, we were, had a plane that just went down. Yes, I think when they say it was a miracle, I think it was, you know, miraculous. But I don't want to say that, that God saved this plane and then let another plane full of passengers, you know, on 9-11, actually three planes go down. I don't, what I try to say is when something happens, you know, what, what, what do I learn about that? You know, I mean, when I've had some experiences where I guess you could say I've been to hell and back in my own life with my parents dying and my dad being an alcoholic and stuff. So I say, because I've been to hell and back, I can be a tour guide for other people. And to me, it's kind of a miracle, you know, when you have someone who used to be an alcoholic who is now sober, you know, and I think there's something, when I've seen people be surrounded by a loving, caring Christian community, I do think that sometimes wholeness can be restored in someone's life. Subsequently, I've also seen where a Christian community that didn't care about people, was very, very judgmental, you know, drove, drove some kid to suicide because he just didn't fit that mold. How, how do you view the Old Testament? You said you um, view scriptures differently than, say, people who see the Bible as inerrant. Uh, do you think do you think that, for example, in Numbers, I think it was 29 or 30, where the children of Israel come back to Moses and they said, look, we killed all these people except we spared the women and the children. And Moses gets really angry and says, I told you to kill everybody. Uh, goes back, prays, comes back and says, yep, you need to kill everybody except you kill the all the men, you kill all the women who have known other men, and you save the virgins and we'll keep them. I mean, how does that kind of story fit in? Did it actually literally happen? Is this something we're supposed to get some sort of message from? How, how do you view these parts of the Old Testament that seem really derived from Bronze Age mythology? And and basically Bronze Age ethics as well, because, I mean, basically yeah. they're pulling in virgins to uh, grow bigger. Know, whatever, I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, or parting of the Red Sea, or the pillar of fire, the burning bush, all that stuff. Well, a lot of my rethinking about this was formed when I went to Israel and it hit me that what was in the Bible was true even if it wasn't true literally and when you take a book look like the Bible that is this beautiful to me as, as you know is one of the most remarkable books of literature that is full of poetry parable myth metaphor history it's just streaming you know with all these different stories and accounts and just to reduce it to a simple lines of this, 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 and to, and you know, liberals do this too, and so do ultra conservatives. To just pull from that Bible certain passages, I think misses the message behind the meaning. And there's something about walking on the holy soil in the Holy Land 
where all of a sudden it hit me. Now I know why all three world religions are fighting over this and why I don't know how we can resolve it. There's something, it just, it, it just hit me in a very visceral way that, and, and, I, and it, believe it or not, I was actually working on the New Atheist book at the time. It just hit me. Dawkins, you're the one in his delusion. I can't explain this, but I know it's true. And this gets into like the different levels of knowing and how we know something is true. And it's, it's not a question of just being, you know, oh, oh goody, touchy-touchy-feely. It's just having this profound metaphysical experience that I know something is true. Well, you know, I mean, you can certainly strongly believe something's true. Uh, to me, the, the epistemology, the study of knowledge, I mean, it, it has to be empirical. You have to have some sort of evidence, which is, again, why I kind of lost my faith. There's really the uh, traditional philosophical arguments for the existence of God, your ontological, your cosmological, your teleological, um, uh, they all have problems. And so if you don't have a, a kind of a logical construct for God, and you don't have any evidence in, in the real world for the existence of God, I really have a hard time believing. Mm -hmm. but, but as I was saying, there was something when I went to Israel, what's also been very true for me is to me Christ has been revealed to me through certain times in, in my Christian community. I might have had several times where it was almost as though, like, and I don't want to say this to be flip, but it was almost like a person came to me in the form of an angel and rescued me when I really needed to be rescued. And there was some, something about, and I think when people don't have that, I can see why they'd be cynical and just give up on God and say this is a joke. But I've had enough encounters with people that really followed Christ and really were practicing Christians that they keep me believing like some kind of rabid pit bull that I know I've seen enough glimpses of God that I know it is true. I wonder and if... only little glimpses. You know, you don't see it a whole lot. I mean... Sure. I mean, I, the, the, I don't I doubt, for example, that George W. Bush believes in God. I believe that he, his interpretation of scriptures and mine are totally different. I wonder if we'd be having this similar conversation 2,500 years ago, except you replaced Jesus for, I don't know, Dionysus or uh, oh, Zeus. Oh, you're talking one of the other religions. Or, you, know, I, you know, I believe in Aphrodite, for example, because uh, I fell in love the other day or something like that. I mean, no, no, it's a whole different thing because what was remarkable about the early Christian church is these were communities of people that expressed genuine love and caring for each other. I mean, they were, they were doing equal distribution of wealth. Nobody was hungry. Nobody went poor. This, and people kept saying, there's something remarkable about this community. They had not seen this before. You know, they were more concerned about loving each other than showing their purity, than showing their temple sacrifices. It, it just grabbed people. And when you see a Christian community that's really in action, and I think the Amish were a perfect example of that during when they had the shootings. Sure. Watching that in action, you're going, wow, that is different. That was the problem is that we as Christians, yeah, since I it do. became joined with empire, too often we don't exhibit that. Well, you know, I th we, yeah, we, I think when you – that's why the separation of church and state is so important. Not only for the state, but for the church. Uh, if you combine um, – uh, political power in with uh, your your convictions and, and your beliefs and your religious beliefs and your religious you, you end up having a hierarchy that uh, is counterproductive I think to 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 theology and to doctrine and you end up persecuting other beliefs and there are probably something like three thousand different sects of Christianity inside the United States 
it, it, it amazes me that any one of those sects would say, okay, let's put creationism into schools. Because you know it's going to be taught by someone other who, than Right, exactly. Eventually, someone, to, yeah. someone down the street who might be a Mormon, for example, or a Southern Baptist, someone not of your flavor of Christianity. Who's going to wink at you and say, you know, this is be teaching your kids God, some crazy wink, stuff. wink, our God, not their God. And, I mean, I agree with Charlie entirely. This is why it should be separated. Now, what are your views on that, Becky? Well, I'm a direct descendant of Roger Williams. I'm his 11th and 12th great-granddaughter. You know, great so I, I realized that there's a little bit of that in my bones. I didn't realize until I started reading some of his writings. And where I think we need to look at, anybody who says that we come from a Christian nation, needs to look at the Winthrop versus Williams fights. From the beginning of our nation, there was a fight. Are we, as the pilgrims and John Winthrop had said, this new Israel who's going to form a city on the hill, or do we practice, as Robert, Roger Williams says, soul liberty, where everyone is free to choose their own religion, you cannot force-feed anyone religion. Now, given Roger Williams was banished to Rhode Island and, you know, pretty much given the, the smallest state in the Union, it's kind of obvious it's always been a minority view in this country. I think that those of us who advocate for soul liberty, you know, there seems to be this, this, this civic religion of America that has always been, you know, somewhat Christian, then it was Judeo-Christian, now we're saying it's um, all three, you know, it's just this Abrahamic religion. There's always been this kind of melding of church and state in some very subtle ways. And those of us who try to advocate for a strict separation like Roger Williams do tend to find ourselves in the minority. Yeah, the uh, Treaty of Tripoli um, early on when the pirates were attacking, the, yeah. the, the Muslim pirates were attacking, uh, said we are in no sense a Christian nation, right? We are a secular nation that happens to be filled with Christians, basically. Uh, and that was passed by Congress and signed by the president. So it, it's tough to make that claim, especially when a lot of the founding fathers, Jefferson, Madison, uh, exchanged letters back and forth saying uh, Madison didn't even want clergy in the army, right, in the armed forces. He didn't want them paid yeah, by he government. he wanted them separated taxes. completely. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing that we go from that to, uh, you know, well, we've got to have this stuff in schools and we gotta, we got to give these. Uh, what bothers me is Bush's faith-based programs, too. Uh, because that money always comes with strings attached. And it amazes me that churches would accept this because down the line somewhere, the government's going to be telling them what they can and can't say. There, there's always strings attached to these things. Well, I mean, from what I gather, Obama's plan is less odious, but you're still having a number of people with their hand out hoping this is going to be resurrected. Well, yeah, he, and, he's going to... Um, I don't know if... I thought he was going to expand it, which was horrifying to me, but... Uh, he may have just said that to get the evangelical vote. I don't know. I hope it's. <laughs> I guess less, we'll find out as soon as yeah, it goes forward. I hope it's less extensive than Bush's. Um, we're in a recession. I don't know where he's going to get the money from, for starters. But secondly, I mean, I think that more people need to read seriously read Jeff Charlotte's book, The Family, and try to understand the history of the National Prayer Breakfast. Now, what you have here is, and this is this is confirmed by my suspicions. The it's a private organization where the invitations are issued from the White House to a prayer breakfast, where in the words of one of the members of the, of the leaders of the family, you know, G, you know, every, every religion may be welcome, but Jesus is always present. So it's one of those, you get, you get this definite sense that this is a national prayer breakfast that basically is, fair, you know, I would say Christocentric, even though it does not say it so overtly, that has become an invitation. I mean, a member of a, let's say a member of, let's say a government, you know, entity can get money, pay for a seat at this table, 
and all of a sudden get a photo of themselves with the president by superseding the entire State Department. Sure. Um, Ted Haggard was supposedly in touch with the president or, or part of it as leader of the evangelicals. Uh, he used to claim on a weekly basis, which to me is just an egregious violation of oh, church and uh, state. He, he was he he talked to them for a weekly basis until he was caught with his pants down. Sure, and, and then the White House claimed he never spoke with them. Right, exactly. Which is a lot of backpedaling. <laughs> and and now we're looking at you know Rick Warren and you know a whole palooza of people offering. I could friends. not believe that Obama. I think he's trying to be like Abraham Lincoln in that he's reaching across the aisle. And showing that he's president of everybody, but my God, Rick Warren, <laughs> Rick Warren, well, you might as well have got yeah. James Dobson, you know, the uh, Family Foundation, whatever that is. It's just it's a it's a horrible message, and this person certainly does not need another venue f to spew his um, his agenda. Agenda. Well, he he's going to he's assuming the Billy Graham mantle, so get used to it. Oh God. Now, one thing I would like to do is actually change the subject. I mean, we are uh, coming into our about 40 minutes into our podcast, and there's something that uh, I've actually been very interested in asking you, Becky, and it's, uh, it's one of the reasons that led me down to my deconversion before I even uh, understood that there was a concept in philosophy for it, but it's the problem of evil. Now, uh, one of the main things that led me, uh, started leading me away from religion is when I was living in Manila, and uh, I walked down this this back alley where most tourists would never go, and I looked down and there was this river of trash. Two kids were standing out in the river wearing nothing but rags, and they were, you know, searching through it for uh, something to eat, something to uh, to use. And the problem of evil, I mean, uh, you've listened to our previous podcast, so it's already been brought up, but um, it all comes down to either God is willing, but he doesn't have the power to help, he is unwill. He has the power, but he is unwilling. And in either instance, it's a contradiction in terms. Now, uh, I've been very curious to find out uh, what your perceptions on such a concept might be. Well, one thing that's really stuck with me, and it's when I interviewed um, James Martin, who wrote a book called "Searching for God at Ground Zero," and I asked him this question: "Well, where was God?" Because he served as a chaplain afterwards, and he said that he believed that God was with the firefighters they went up there to do the john you know giving their life so that others may live and yet when, when i was involved in the recovery effort afterwards for a few brief time a lot of race and class and all these barriers were broken down so that we could respond not out of hubris but out of humility and there was something there and it's how we respond to what goes on in the world and that's the, what i like to turn my efforts on is how do I respond to what is going on? Do I respond with, you know, sadness, or do I respond with an open, with an open and loving heart? Now, wouldn't that be more of a human reaction, um, uh, or is this God entering the hearts of the firemen, sending them forward into this? Um, a lot of the firefighters were Catholic, so I bet you have to ask them what was in their specific heart. I mean, I, I don't think that Christians, by any means, have a monopoly on the full range of human experiences. But somehow through that, I mean, I felt that my faith upheld me and enabled me to do the work. And praying with other people enabled me to continue to do the work. That that is the fuel that feeds me. And if someone is fit, fueled by another source, I'm not going to argue against that source. And Lord knows, you know, the Christians have produced enough, you know, toxic emissions that I'm not going to say, you know, that we always do the correct thing. 
So you almost sound like a, a religious humanist in that, in that God might be up there, uh, but he kind of inspires humans. I mean, humans are the real agents of change. Uh, I wouldn't like. say I'm a religious humanist at all. I mean, I fully believe in, in the power of the risen Christ, in the power. There's something that happened on Calvary, and it's not the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he died and he rose again from the dead, and that has transformed my life and how I view the world. But I don't feel that it is my job, because we, we as Christians have such a bad job of conveying that message, that I want to f spend my energy and my focus on how do I live that message out. All right. How about one... Do you have another question? No, go ahead. Go one ahead. final question. If it turned out to be a myth that Christ didn't actually literally die, uh, didn't suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, that that uh, it it was as uh, some people think that he never existed in the first place, and it was just sort of a Jewish version of the mystery religions. Would that affect your faith, or could you interpret the New Testament this kind of the same as you do the Old Testament, in that a lot of this stuff was allegory? Would it would it destroy your faith if Jesus never walked the earth? I I I think that's kind of one of those questions that. To me, Jesus walked from the earth, and he still walks with us today. It's definitely a hypothetical question. And I'll, I'll go on record by saying that, that I do think Jesus did walk the earth, and there are a couple reasons. One, if they were going to make it up, I don't think they'd make it up that he was crucified. Yeah, that would go completely against it what... It would be like yeah. saying, I got a new religion for you. Um, um, by the died, way, our guy died a criminal. He, he got electrocuted in the chair, you know? I, mean, uh, it, I, don't, I don't think historically what happened would have happened in terms of the, the people just forming these communities together, expressing this kind of love. These are people that actually had seen and, and lived and been around Jesus. They had seen him. The, the, he spoke to a number of people after he was risen from the dead. They would um, not have been that willing to go to their deaths that freely. That, you know, there's, there, you know, that, there's something that happened to these early Christians that transformed their lives completely upside down. These are the ones that actually saw Jesus. And I, I'm, I'm not so sure a lot of people actually saw him. I mean, the first uh, Christian communities were founded by Paul, who himself actually didn't really see Jesus except in a vision, right? We don't have a whole lot of community of their traditions that some of the apostles, such as Thomas, went to India, you know, these other people went to different places. We really don't have any of their writings, um, so other than the traditions, we're not quite sure what happened. We do know that Paul went around setting up shop. I guess he was a leather person, made tents or, or yeah. leathers. and he, he did a lot of Christian communities, and I, I seriously doubt that we would have a Christianity at all if not for Paul. Um, and I'm not... Uh, Paul said, he did say that he talked face-to-face -face with Peter. So there's a little, there's a continuity there. But in the ancient world, I'm not sure too many people would have actually well, had a whole lot of... Well, it, it goes into the fact that... that a number of, because when Jesus was alive and how many people he spoke to and how many people he met in his ministry, it took a while before all those people who actually had a physical sighting of Jesus or they knew of somebody who knew who had seen Jesus. So there was a period of time when it was sort of like saying, you know, your great-great-grandmother saw the person. So it came a point when it had a lot more authenticity. What I'm saying is in the early Christian years, I don't think this many people would have agreed to go before the lions and agree to be martyred in some horrible, horrible ways, unless there was something they truly believed for. But I do believe that if this was just, you know, another kind of interesting deity religion, it would have faded by now. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not convinced. I think 
by the time they're being martyred by the lions, they all have the suffering savior, right? Like, uh, was it um, uh, Ignatius who, who wrote the kind of first martyrology where he's being taken, or, or maybe it was Polycarp, one of the one of the apostolic fathers. But that's in the second century. The first people we have being martyred. I, I think is under Nero, and they were just kind of rounded up, I guess, according to Tacitus, blamed for the fires in Rome and then thrown well, into the Colosseum. Yeah, that was only because he burned Rome to uh, build his own That's place. what Tacitus yeah, says. He's covering yeah. for himself, right? Uh, but by the time you get to the second century, you have this whole theology about Jesus uh, and his passion and the suffering, and you've got to be like Jesus, and you've got to... Um, uh, suffer like Jesus, and it would be really good for you to do this, and that will assure you of heaven. Um, and, I don't know. I and don't know. Becky, um, you did bring up that uh, it would be uh, kind of like your grandparents telling the story to your parents, them telling it to you. Um, is there any chance that any of the story might have been convoluted if with that sort of passing down? As I said, getting back to the original message, this is why I think it's interesting as you study different scholars, that the three synoptic Gospels do have some variations, and then there's the other Gospel of John. Right. But what amazes me is how the message behind the stories remains true several thousand years later. And there's something, and what's also very exciting for me is I'm seeing a number of this whole revival, and I'm seeing it in a number of people forming intentional communities, a strong desire of these kids just to buck a lot of this materialism, to buck a lot of this Christianity of their parents that they don't see speaking to them, and to really seek and explore what it means to really follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century. I've been studying, you know, there's a lot of revivals going on over in the UK. There are just these underground movements that are just very exciting and very inspiring. There's a Christian musical festival called Greenbelt that attracts in supposedly secular, you know, Great Britain, 20,000 people from around the world. I'm going to be speaking this summer at a festival called Slot on a panel, and that gets like thousands of, you know, these kids from supposedly completely post-Christian Europe. There's, there's something going on, you know, that, um, as Phyllis Tickle describes it as the great emergence. We're having this big upheaval that's affecting everything, science, technology, religion, the culture at large. And it's interesting as we're going through this whole sea change. You know, we really, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint exactly where we're going. But it's an exciting period, I think, to be alive right now. I think that the message being relevant 2,000 years later puts it in the category of great literature. I think... You know, I got a, a, a healthy respect for certain parts of the Old Testament. Genesis, uh, I think, fits in the mold of great literature. Uh, certainly, uh, Ecclesiastes' uh, range is very poetic and, and it is uh, beautiful. Uh, John is amazingly beautiful, uh, apparently even in the original Greek. You know, Mark is kind of a rough Greek. Um, Matthew and Luke, you can, you can kind of trace the accretion of legends as they go on, because Mark's supposedly the earliest... It has no virgin birth, um, uh, you know, the, the stories about, there's no childhood at all. There's yeah. uh, stories about um, him baptizing, but this, the miracles get bigger and bigger and bigger as, as it goes on until in, in John you have this full sort of divinity where he's like co-equal with God. So basically, you're <clears throat> equating it to Romeo and Juliet, something that's been around for several hundred years. I think or... it's classic literature. It's It speaks to... Um, to universal themes. Uh, it doesn't make it true, but uh, the themes may be. The, you know, Jesus' great advancement uh, was that he took the primary commandment and made it love, basically. Yeah. This is a wandering apocalyptic preacher of the first century. 
I think John the Baptist was probably more influential in his time because he's mentioned by Josephus. Josephus much more. I mean, um, Christianity in and of itself. I mean, Christ was never mentioned by Josephus. It was more the followers of it Christ. It seems like he didn't uh, make a splash because Josephus was in the generation right after Jesus in the same area. He was a general in Galilee. He should have heard these stories, but apparently he's totally oblivious to it. But I think the main thing is that the message of the New Testament is, I, mean, I think it is classical literature. I think it's up there with the Odyssey, the Iliad, uh, parts of Genesis, uh, and great, great literature. So I just don't think it's true. Basically, what you're... <laughs> the key difference is that what you're having, I guess I just have been around Christian communities that take what you call great literature and watching how it is enacted today. And there is something different about these people. And... I can tell, I mean, I, I, I guess I've covered religion long enough. I can go in, when I go into certain churches and I can feel, even though it's kind of like, okay, this is like really corny, I'm going to get the heck out of here. And I'll go to other places and just feel, and it can be unexpected. Oh, wow, there's something about this group of people here trying to serve Jesus. You know, they're, Sure, and you know, Mormons, it, Mormons say the same thing. <laughs> Right, they'll have uh, they'll have their little stories about um, feeling the spirit and, and how wonderful it is. Uh, to me, Mormons are very nice. They're very 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 friendly. Um, but apart from that, I don't really. And, and Christians, by and large, um, outside of the Fred Phelps and God hates fags crew, they're they're pretty friendly. Um, now, basically, what Charlie's talking about is a conversation I've had with uh, with him concerning comments my mother has made. I mean. She's basically uh, made certain comments as when, uh, when she sees somebody, uh, she can see whether or not they're choosing the right path or the wrong path because they lose their glow, as she puts it. I'd love to subject that to a, a blinded study. No, I, no, I would... Oh, God, the glow stuff. <laughs> what I'm referring to is I can't... It's really hard to put your finger on, but like... And I'd say the, a good example would be the, the Amish. I mean, there's something about... As people keep saying, and one thing that I wish I'd like to see more about Christians is, wow, there's something about those peculiar people. I mean, I've been on the Habitat for Humanity Bill, which is an organization that a gentleman founded after having a religious conversion experience. And just looking at what he chose to do with that faith and being on a build where, you know, in you're together with a lot of different people from, at least in, especially in New York, will have, after 9-11, they started bringing in, you know, Muslim student groups and just... There's something about building a house together where we were building as Christians and some Jewish groups and some Muslim groups together and then dedicating that house, you know, giving the person a Bible. There was something about that. There was something about, to me, the person of Jesus Christ when I see him enacted among Christian people that is just loving, it is not judgmental. And the, the glow thing is kind of cheesy. It's, it's, it's not even a glow thing. It's just, there, you can just, you, you, you sense you're in the presence of something this bigger than yourself, uh, and that's I mean, he's living Christ in action. That's just what I feel, and that's and that's why I continue to remain a Christian despite other Christians. Sure, uh, I mean, um, I agree. I, I would I would put that down to uh, people just being nice in general. I, I think that they're pretty nice. Although I, I suppose you know you you read some of the words of, of Plato or Socrates and. Uh, you come out with some, or Aristotle's, uh, some interesting ideas about ethics and, and behavior. I wonder if you put the, the ethics of Aristotle into practice, if it were as widespread as Christianity, if we wouldn't have a lot of the same stories. Well, that's not unique to Jesus. I mean, and that very well could be. I mean, basically... I'm uh, speculating here, as, of course. Yeah, you're speculating, but... Uh, 
as Becky's been saying, I mean, uh, the scriptures, as, as she states it, has a great many stories to, to learn. And uh, I'm, in all honesty, I'd love to have this uh, podcast go longer, but as I'm watching the time tick away, I think we need to end this and perhaps have Becky on a later time. But uh, we do want to thank you very much for coming on board, Becky. It was, uh, it was wonderful to have you and wonderful to get this other viewpoint. And uh, is there anything else you would like to leave us with? No, I just would say to my fellow Christians that we need to start putting Jesus' greatest commandment into practice. Because I think too often what we're getting is this, you know, national prayer breakfast, unification of, you know, church and state where we're all worshiping at the shrine of the White House or the shrine of some televangelist television set instead of trying to put Jesus' teachings into practice. All right. Anything left for you to say, Charlie? She survived. She didn't need a second. Well, you know, uh, I tried to find her a second, but uh, there were a lot of people who were just wanting to see if we're going to tear them apart first. (laughs) And uh, in all honesty, I'm very glad that you survived our podcast, Becky. Okay. (laughs) But uh, anyway, thank you very much for uh, coming on board, and uh, we'll see you later, all right? (laughs) 